Don't believe the hype. It's a sequel. Has an equal Can I Get This Through to You? Chuck D dropped that rhyme in 99, but it still rings true no matter the time. Market records piling up on speculation, but inflation's eating up the nation. Fed's being dovish, holding that safety net. When that ends is the $2 trillion bet. We need another way to look at this market. Fundamentals aren't working, no matter how we slice it. We need candlestick patterns and some Fibonacci sequence, relative strength indicators, and measures of frequency. Show us some cup and handles, some flying dojis, some pennants, flags, and wedges, not some silly emojis. We need to get our charts out, set us up for success. We need to start charting on the Investopedia Express. Well, welcome back and welcome aboard. This is episode 50 of The Express and we are still rolling. Thanks to those of you who have been riding with us all along, those of you who have joined along the way, and to those of you who just got here. A special welcome to all those university students in North America who are beginning their college years this week, hopefully safely and in person. Best wishes on your learning journeys. And for all you econ, business, and finance students, keep Investopedia close by. We're here for you and we love to serve. Well, the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ are sitting at record highs yet again as we kick off the week. Investors keep climbing those walls of worry, sending those indexes higher despite worries about stretch valuations, declining profit growth, the spread of the Delta variant, inflation, Afghanistan, hurricanes, the global supply chain, China and the U.S. You pick your worry. There are plenty of them. But while U.S. and European markets dance through the fire, investors are starting to play a little more defense. Utilities and healthcare are among the best performing groups in the S&P 500 so far this quarter with gains of 7.8% and 6.6% respectively. That's compared with about a 4.9% rise in the benchmark index. Investors typically pile into those sectors when they're expecting the outlook to dim a little bit. But on the other hand, consumer staples, which usually benefit in a downturn, have been crumbling compared to consumer discretionary stocks. That's not what we would expect to see especially given the pullback in consumer sentiment. On the other other hand, mid-caps, small-caps, and micro-caps, they've all experienced some sort of correction at some point in 2021. Maybe not a handful of the meme stocks, of course, but they're being driven by animal spirits. It's the big market cap weighted index like the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ and the European Stock 600, which is a free floating cap weighted index, that keep grinding higher. But as we've been saying for weeks now, market breadth is kind of weak. The advanced decline line for those three indexes are deteriorating a little bit as more and more stocks are starting to fall than advance. Earnings, however, have been brilliant. And while we may have seen the best of times for a while, they're likely to stay strong unless more COVID cases cause more economic shutdowns. And central banks, well, they still have our backs. The U.S. Federal Reserve wrapped up its virtual Jackson Hole Symposium on Saturday, and these are the key takeaways. The tapering of those $120 billion in monthly bond purchases, it'll begin this year. No specific date has been set, but think late September and October with the caveat, and it's a big caveat, that plans could change if COVID keeps spreading. The raising of interest rates, however, is still a long way off. Early 2023, if you believe Fed Chair Powell, he reiterated that the tapering of the bond purchases and the raising of interest rates are not going to be concurrent. The Fed wants to see inflation in its 2 to 2.5% target range and unemployment between 3 and 4%, which it considers to be full employment. While U.S. government bond yields have been slowly climbing higher, they are no competition for stocks. The S&P 500 earnings yield is now 4.59% compared to the current 10-year Treasury bond rate of 1.31%. 
Where are you going to go? I got nowhere else to go! Richard Keir, crushing it in An Officer and a Gentleman back in 1982. Well, let's come back to 2021 and let's get set up for the week ahead. While the headlines are hot, expect trading and market activity to cool down this week as we head for the Labor Day weekend and the unofficial end of summer here in the U.S. The markets are open all week, but with the three-day weekend coming up, volume is going to get lighter every day. The last of the quarterly earnings reports, they're trickling in, but there are three companies we're going to be paying close attention to. Zoom Video Communications, DocuSign, and Lululemon. Zoom shares spiked 395% in 2020 as we worked and went to school from home. Shares of DocuSign climbed 200% in 2020 as its software became ubiquitous and essential. And shares of Lulu, they stretched 50% as many of us did it all from our yoga pants. I'll speak for myself here. But 2021 has been a different story in so many ways, and these businesses are feeling it. Shares of DocuSign lead the pack up 35% year-to-date, while shares of Lulu are up 16%, underperforming the broader market. But shares of Zoom are basically flat for the year. What happens this fall with the spread of COVID and its impact on the way we work and learn is key to these companies' futures, so we're going to be listening closely for what they have to say on their earnings calls. U.S. auto sales, which were white hot in the first half of 2021, are forecast to fall 9% in August as the market is squeezed even tighter by a worsening supply chain situation. Automakers can't get enough microchips to make their cars, and consumers are kind of tapped out for making those big-ticket purchases. On the economic front on Monday, we'll get key reports on economic and consumer sentiment in Europe. The ECB has remained accommodative, much like its U.S. counterpart, by holding interest rates down near 0% and buying government bonds to maintain liquidity in the capital markets. But consumer sentiment has been slipping in the eurozone amid the rise of the Delta variant. That trend likely continued in August. On Tuesday, the U.S. housing market will be back in focus as the Case-Shiller Home Price Index for July will be released. That measures home prices in the 20 biggest cities in America. The June report showed that prices rose 17% year-over-year, with the largest spikes in Phoenix, San Diego, and Seattle. Prices likely remained high throughout July, but they're showing some signs of easing in August in some markets. On Wednesday, the ISM manufacturing report for the U.S. in August will be released. Manufacturers are juggling higher prices, labor shortages, and supply chain disruptions around the world. Many expected those conditions to have eased by now. But the spread of the Delta variant has prolonged those conditions, and U.S. manufacturers, especially automakers, they're operating at reduced capacities. On Friday, the U.S. non-farms payroll report for August will be released. This may be the key economic indicator that helps the Federal Reserve decide when to taper those $120 billion in monthly bond purchases. Economists expect anywhere from 600,000 to 800,000 jobs to have been added in August. That would represent slower growth from the past two months, but they also expect the unemployment rate to fall to 5.3% from 5.4%. That may not be fast enough for the Fed to start tapering its bond buying program right away. And we've got a big birthday to celebrate this week. The one and only Warren Buffett turns 91 on August 30th, and what a life. Born, raised, and still living in his hometown of Omaha, Nebraska, Buffett is one of the world's greatest investors, capitalists, and philanthropists. But a lot of people don't know that he's also one of the great investing educators that ever lived, so generous with his time and his insights. I've had the pleasure of interviewing Mr. Buffett several times in my career, and those are among my best moments in journalism. For one of the world's richest people, though, Buffett says there's one thing we should value more than anything we can ever put in our bank accounts or add to our portfolios. You will measure your success in life by whether, by how many, and extent, whether it's the people you want at 70 or whatever the age may be, 
you'll measure it by how many of them really love you, you know, in the end. I mean, you can't, you know, you, you, you can't buy love. For all the noise swirling around capital markets, and there's a lot of noise out there, it's harder and harder to focus on what really matters when we're building and maintaining our portfolios. Technical analysts tell us that only one thing really matters, and that's price. Is the security going up or down, and what patterns give us a sense of where it's going? More often than not, they're right. We may love a company, but hate its price or hate its trend. Few people study these patterns and trends more assiduously than Katie Stockton. She's the founder and managing partner of Fairlead Strategies. She's a chartered market technician with a black belt in technical analysis, and she's our very special guest this week on The Express. Welcome, Katie. Thanks so much. Good to be here, Caleb. I am such a big fan of your work. I've been reading you for years. For folks out there who are not completely familiar with the art and science of technical analysis, tell us what you do in your role and how you use it. So, you know, I've been a technician since I started in this business. It's really always been my passion that the form of analysis has always resonated with me. I think in part in my early stages, even before I understood the markets. I just liked the math of it, quite honestly. So I took a course in technical analysis, believe it or not, in college. It was an offering that was there really just because there was a professor there who liked it himself. And it it was very fortunate that I got the exposure that young. Um, And then I realized that it was something that I could make a career out of. And, And really, my discipline is very disciplined. And it's developed over the years. I, I think that's the other thing that resonated with me is that indeed these indicators and tools that we have from technical analysis, they are so mathematically oriented and they can take a lot of the gray area out of the marketplace and give us defined buy or sell triggers. And that to me is just such value add. Now, if there's ever um, you know a bad call being made, it's usually in, in how you're combining the indicators. It's not the indicators themselves that ever fail you. So I really like having these technical indicators on my side and over the years have picked up different tools from different mentors. And that's become my own personal methodology that I use throughout my research and throughout my conversations. Let's turn to the U.S. equity markets right now. More than 50 record highs for the S&P 500 so far this year. We're on pace to beat that 1995 record of 78 record closes. But market breadth feels kind of weak. What are you seeing when you look inside the benchmark index? It's been a really strange year in terms of market breadth or participation in that we have seen some rotational pullbacks, some major rotational moves. And not just on the sector front, which is sort of normal, but also on the factor front. Um, you know, think about high growth as one great case in point. The high growth arena peak February, maybe in March, and bottomed much lower in May for the most part. And that correction really had very little impact on the major indices, and yet it had a lot of impact on people's portfolios. So that makes for a much more difficult tape and environment for people to take advantage of. We also saw a pretty sizable correction in the cyclical sectors of the market that we're just now coming out of. And again, there it's almost remarkable how little impact that had on some measures like the cumulative advanced decline lines. They, they certainly pulled back, but they didn't break down. And I think that 
in terms of market breadth is the most important takeaway that we've seen these rotational pullbacks. We've seen some impact on the cumulative measures, but no big bearish reversals, no big breakdowns to highlight. And those are the things that make us more worried about a tape. Right. The quietness of it all. And it's awful quiet out there. We've gone nine months or so without a 5% move lower in the S&P 500. Some technical analysts say that's a confirmation of a trend in and of itself. Do you believe that? Or is this something that's a little bit concerning? Because you know, it, it is the natural state of the market to have these moves of a few percent here and there, not in a day, of course, but over time. But are you concerned that it's been so quiet? You know, I wouldn't say concerned that with the quiet comes sort of an eerie feeling, right? That really quiet feeling, especially now as we come into September, which holds a sort of a weak seasonal influence to it just over time. And yet, uh, you know, as long as the momentum is there and as long as the longs are working and your shorts aren't working, I think we can trust that we're still in a bull market. And I, I really give a lot of weight to the momentum gauges, to the trend following indicators. And we do at times get caught up in the short term wiggles. Um, but overall, you know, long term bullish bias has been appropriate since that March 2020 COVID low. And the indicators that helped us time that entry are still mostly positive. So we don't see any signs of a major reversal, but we do see indications of short term exhaustion. And when that happens, we're respectful of that as just a way to, to perhaps put on short term market hedges. So we have ways to position around that and manage risk through that type of environment. And if and when we are, are to see a loss of momentum that looks more meaningful to us, then, then of course, we'll react to that as well, just being respectful of, as you mentioned, price. <laughs> price is, is king for us too. And uh, you know we'll be respectful of any breakdowns that we do see. We've seen, going back to that sector rotation conversation, a lot of sector rotation in the U.S. stock market for the past 15, 16 months as this recovery has kind of unfolded. Index investors, though, have done just fine sitting back, watching the S&P 500 cruise up 19, 20%. But what should we be worried about, if anything, as the rotation keeps playing out? I mean, how long can the big, large cap tech stocks drag the indexes higher? They are the giants, but at some point, is the concentration a concern? I think there's plenty to worry about. I I think very little of it can be derived from technical analysis. Uh, Market sentiment, to me, is usually the thing that triggers major corrective phases. And market sentiment, if anything, it's a little bit mixed and convoluted at this time. But if anything, it's more conducive to the uptrend as opposed to being too greedy, something that we're we're seeing some exuberance or complacency that would be of concern, which you would almost expect that to be the case when these major indices keep forging to new all-time highs. But indeed, it's not. And and that perhaps is because of macro forces, people thinking about the tapering or or whatever it may be that the sort of issue du jour. So the worries are certainly always out there. But again, we just go back to price. And if we were to see a breakdown, then we react to it. We don't see any indications of that right now. And we also don't see any big, worrisome negative divergences. And that's something that doesn't really tend to be the best market timing device anyway, But if we saw something structural where that breath was really contracting to a greater degree, and then we would take issue with that. The Russell 2000 index is is another way to identify market breath and participation beyond our beloved large cap technology sector. And while the Russell 2000 has been range bound for much of the year, it's really managing to hold a very key support and therein has preserved its own long-term uptrend. 
steep uptrends do need at times interruptions. And, and what we've seen up to this you know, time from the Russell 2000 still looks like a consolidation phase within a long-term uptrend. And when you look intermarket or across markets, you'll find bear markets in certain places. Certainly Hong Kong, the Hang Seng had a 20% drawdown because of all that regulation going over there. The small caps have not kept up with, with the large caps per se. You'll find them. How important is that intermarket correlation to you when you're looking, and, and especially in what we've seen lately, where you're seeing bond yields rise, government bond yields rise, corporate bond yields rise, stocks rise, everything seems to be going up at the same time. How important is it to look at what's happening intermarket? You know, it's always on my radar, and I wouldn't minimize the importance ever of looking at a broad swath of, of indices and equities, commodities, X, to understand primarily whether it's a risk on or risk off environment globally. Uh, I think that can be very good information to have, but then also to apply the relative strength analysis, say, between emerging markets in the US or developed global in the US, that can help us outperform. And I think at the end of the day, that's really what we're trying to do is to try to find those opportunities and outperform the S&P 500, which is made even more difficult by the fact that it's just forged higher uh, really very consistently. So we have to work a little harder to, to beat that benchmark. And the way to do it is by doing exactly that, looking at that broad swath of indices. So part of our process each morning before we write our morning note is to go through fixed income benchmarks, even though we really aren't focused on fixed income, um, you know, commodity futures, market internal measures, sector ETFs, global benchmarks, even global sectors, just looking for something, not, not really with any specific intention, except to see perhaps some breakouts, breakdowns, MACD buy signals, MACD sell signals. Uh, so I, ideally seeing these momentum shifts or relative strength shifts that are meaningful. Well, let's talk about copper, Dr. Copper, which I know is a, a fan favorite among CMTs because it is such a, a good indicator. But even if you look at lumber too, those prices have crashed down, way down from their highs, but they were exuberantly high. But when you look at copper, which is also sometimes I know I've heard you folks talk about it as a proxy for emerging markets and, and what's happening around the world. What is it telling you? You know, copper and, and now even WTI crude oil have pulled back pretty notably, and yet they're still, for the most part, above their rising 200-day moving averages. So I, I think it's important to contextualize the corrective phase within the long-term uptrends that have been established and look at them as counter-trend. These corrections tend to unfold in, I call it ABC fashion, where you see an initial downdraft, a relief rally, and then a final downdraft. And I think that's the mode in which we're in right now for copper in particular, having held right around its rising 200-day, got pretty oversold near that level. And that, of course, sends a positive message for the, the global economy, if indeed it comes out of this corrective phase, as the charts would suggest. So I'm not too worried about it. And I think that we should be looking for entries in a lot of these more cyclical areas of the market, because it's so infrequent that you see oversold readings. And, and by this, I mean, looking at the weekly charts, looking at things like the stochastic oscillator or RSI or DeMarc indicators. It's so rare to see these oversold readings within long-term uptrends. In some cases, we have to go back to that those March 20 lows. So it's not a short-term comment, but it does suggest that there's probably some opportunities to add intermediate to long-term cyclical exposure. 
You are a close follower of cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and some others. Technical analysis seems sometimes, Katie, like the only reasonable way to evaluate crypto since they don't really have the fundamentals that we're used to following in the equity market. What can you tell us about the price trends for the major cryptos? Now, let's start with Bitcoin and this recent surge over the last few weeks. You know, the the cryptocurrency space really lends itself very well, I found, to technical analysis. It took me more than a couple of years to get comfortable with that. I, I watched Bitcoin very closely for probably two years before I really felt like I could rely on the indicators and rely on the levels. And I found that there's such deep liquid markets for for at least Bitcoin and Ether that it, they trade like FX. So they, they really do trade like currencies. And, and most technicians will probably attest to the fact that both uh, the FX space and, and commodities, which are also sort of deep, liquid global markets, they tend to really lend themselves to the technical indicators and also provide reliable levels derived from price action. We talk about support levels, which are potential areas of buying pressure and resistance levels. And we feel like we can rely on the levels that we can derive from both Bitcoin and Ether's charts. So we've started publishing weekly on the space, and then we'll, we'll give some intra-week color at times when there's volatility, of which there's a lot of in the cryptocurrency space. And we've seen a really great relief rally. And it was important that we've seen that off of the July low because it, it preserved very key support for both Bitcoin and Ether and, and there and also most other altcoins. So that support was defined by a Fibonacci retracement level in part, but also something that we call the cloud model. The cloud model is a Japanese model um, labeled Ichimoku. And this model is pointing higher for most every cryptocurrency that we track. And it was left intact during what now in hindsight is a corrective phase, not the start of a bearish reversal. Just this past week, we did come out with a short-term sell signal based on our, our shorter-term overbought, oversold measures. So we are looking for additional consolidation here in the near term. And that helps folks just time their entries and, and perhaps be hedged at the appropriate moments. And yet we think ultimately we'll see the cryptocurrencies forge higher, clear the resistance, which is essentially in line for Bitcoin and Ether, and ultimately retest the uh, yearly highs, if not this year, then early in the new year. What's a relatively simple way non-CMTs like me can use technical analysis to evaluate price movements and patterns with cryptocurrencies? What are are some of the basics that you're using? My toolbox does include some very basic indicators that are really very readily accessible online for the most part. A lot of them, even through folks' investment accounts, a lot of these providers of investment accounts have charting services that they offer with those accounts. And then you can you know, go to something like stockcharts.com, TradingView, and, and access very low-priced or even free technical indicators. And, and I think that's just wonderful because it's really opened up the market and, and helped educate people in their trading and investing decisions. So some of the tools that I have used historically are, are the MACD indicator. It stands for Moving Average Convergence Divergence. It's a trend-following or momentum gauge very common indicator, very um, you know accessible as mentioned, and we use the standard parameters, so we're not um, getting too cute by trying to you know work with the data and check different time frames, but rather we look at them on daily bar charts, weekly bar charts, monthly bar charts, and with all that, we we feel like we can get a good short, intermediate, and long term takeaway. 
We like to enhance the MACD with other um, in overbought, oversold measures. We also really put a lot of weight on support and resistance. The analysis of support and resistance is a, a bit more where the art of technical analysis comes in as opposed to the science. So that's something that the way I tell people um, to learn it is just by looking at charts, not to oversimplify, but the more you look at the charts, the more you'll start to understand what are natural support and resistance levels. And that's a huge added value uh, when you're trading something as security. Yeah, more often than not, they actually do play out support and resistance. They're, They're there for a reason. They've been tried and true for a reason. Final question, Katie. You've been studying technical analysis your whole professional life, basically. What is your favorite chart? The one that just makes you say, I love what I do. I love this chart. Is there any particular one that stands out for you? And I have to go back to that MACD indicator because what I think a lot of us are trying to do is to eliminate noise, of which the market has plenty of that right now. And the MACD, while it's a lagging indicator because it's derived from moving averages of price, it will help you stay on the right side of a trend for the most part for the bulk of that trend. And it will help you understand when there's a good chance that that trend is reversing within, I'd say, maybe three to four price bars. And we, we don't need to be the heroes, you know, buying the inflection point. Uh, but if within a three or four days, weeks, months, we feel like we have that, that confirmation from the MACD, that we find really valuable. And I think we all struggle with sell discipline and, and the MACD well, it's either on a buy signal or a sell signal. You really can't argue with that. And that way it helps take out some of our own biases in our trading and investing. And we have plenty of them. Our animal spirits will just take over if we let them, which is why I love technical analysis because it just erases that. It just pushes that all to the side. Focus on the price, focus on the patterns. You do such a great job of it. And you've been such a good educator and so generous with your knowledge over the years. Katie Stockton, the founder and managing partner of Fairlead Strategies. Thanks so much for being on The Experience. This week. Great to be with you. It's terminology time. Time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. This week's term comes to us from Mark in Houston, Texas. Mark suggests direct indexing this week, and we like that term. Direct indexing, according to Investopedia, attempts to replicate the performance of an index by purchasing the underlying individual equities instead of using an ETF or a mutual fund in an investor's portfolio. Online brokers have made the direct index method more accessible to retail investors through no-fee trading of stocks and the ability to buy fractional shares. Rather than purchasing a mutual fund that holds all of the stocks in the S&P 500, for example, investors can purchase shares of all 500 stocks individually and decide how much of each they want to own. It takes a lot more effort, but it's possible. We like that term, Mark, because 2021 has been a very good year for plain vanilla index investors, especially those who have stuck with the market cap weighted indexes like the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ. They're up 20% and 17% respectively so far. The S&P 500 is up more than 100% from its lows of March of 2020. So if you stayed invested and kept investing, it's been an easy time to let it ride. If you stock picked and direct indexed, you certainly could have fared better as long as you picked the right stocks and favored the winners and as long as you had the time to do it. Good one, Mark. We're sending you some slick Investopedia socks for your next night out at Gatlin's down there in Houston, Texas. We're going to let Tim Cook take us out this week. Cook celebrated 10 years as the CEO of Apple last week, taking over for Steve Jobs as Jobs' health was failing near the end of his life. Talk about tough shoes to fill, but Cook had already been with Apple and Jobs for about 14 years, and he knew the company well. But before he came to Apple, Cook was on a very different path. 
He was an MBA and an engineer, not a product guy, not a dreamer the way Jobs was, or so he thought. Here's Cook in 2014, addressing the graduating class of George Washington University, talking about how Jobs convinced him to come to Apple. When it came to my career in 1998, I was also adrift, rudderless. I knew who I was in my personal life, and I kept my eye on my North Star, my responsibility to do good for someone else other than myself. But at work, well, I always figured that work was work. Values had their place. And yes, there were things that I wanted to change about the world, but I thought I'd have to do that on my own time, not in the office. Steve didn't see it that way. He was an idealist. And in that way, he reminded me of how I felt as a teenager. In that first meeting, he convinced me that if we worked hard and made great products, we too could help change the world. And to my surprise, I was hooked. Cook did not merely take over for Steve Jobs. He accelerated the founder's vision and he built Apple into a company worth $2.47 trillion today, generating over $275 billion in annual sales last year. Apple is among the most widely held stocks among individual and institutional investors, ETFs, mutual funds, pension funds, foreign investors, and hedge funds. For those who have remained invested in the company under Cook's stewardship, the returns have been exceptional, up over 1,000% in the past 10 years. Let's never stop searching for our own right paths. What are we here to do? What makes us the best us? Who can we help? What can we change? Never stop asking, never stop riding the train, and we'll talk again a little further on down the line. <music>